0: Well, good morning. Again, I can't tell you uh, how great it is to actually be in the house of God. Um, After several weeks of quarantine and in Kansas City, we were sheltering in place. So I haven't actually set uh, foot in a church building for a service full of people since March, I think, uh, when I was visiting family in Georgia. But it might not surprise you that in the past weeks and months, Um, that streaming numbers, streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime, stuff like that, has gone up a lot. Uh, People are at home, so they watch shows. And uh, in the McRoy house, we are no different. Um, About the time we started sheltering in place, um, I had finished most of my major papers in seminaries. uh, seminaries, So Sarah and I decided to look around Amazon Prime and see if there was a show or something that we could watch and get into. And the one that we um, started watching, this isn't a... uh, uh, endorsement of the show is Downton Abbey. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's a show set around this large estate in England um, in the 19-teens, early 1900s. And like I said, there's, I don't endorse any of the morality of the show or the historical inaccuracy, but for our purposes this morning, for the text we're going to look at, there's an interesting um, illustration in the first season of the show. The show starts out, the Titanic has just sank, and the heir to this large estate was on the Titanic. And so now in British legal system or whatever, they're looking for the new heir. Who's going to take over this estate? And it ends up being this solicitor, which is what we call a lawyer, named Matthew Crawley. He's a middle-class guy. Um, he's used to pouring his own tea. Uh, he may have had a butler, I don't remember, but he doesn't have all these servants and things um, that they do at the estate. And he struggles in the beginning uh, moving into this aristocratic life with having a guy that a valet or valet that puts on his jacket he doesn't like people pouring his tea for him Um, he doesn't like all the servants or that someone gets a car he thinks i can do these things for myself but eventually what he learns is is that he has been plucked from his old life his middle class english life in that part of time into an aristocratic life so he's been pulled from his last life and there's now a new code of conduct which he eventually ends up accepting. Now, whether or not you think that that's the kind of life that people should have, that's the story um, that we see. Another uh, thought might be uh, closer to home for me is a military one. Imagine for a moment we have a guy comes in here and he says, I'm a Green Beret. Not, I used to be a Green Beret, but I'm currently serving as a Green Beret. But he struggles walking up the steps. He's out of breath. He's just really bad out of shape. Um, Things upset him, not like in a PTSD type way, but just like he, he gets agitated easily. He doesn't seem to have the mindset of a Green Beret. He can't walk up steps, um, yet he always says, oh, I'm an active duty Green Beret right now, like I, I'm going to some foreign country next week. Most of us would struggle with seeing the connection there. So this morning, we're going to look at another text in First Peter as we continue to walk through this series Titled The Marrow of Christian Faith. And I have a few questions that I would like for us to think through as we begin to look at this text. Do you value your status in the kingdom of God? If you're here and you're a Christian, do you value that status? Do you realize what a privilege it is to live in this part of salvation history? So, in this time, this side of the cross, do you realize that privilege? Do you have a desire to be holy? Do you have a desire to be set apart, is what that word means, to be godly? Do you actively seek to kill sin in your life? When you read imperatives in the Bible calling you to holiness, calling you to do certain things, do you skip over them as though they do not apply to you? When you are called out to a holy life, do you assume the preacher is a legalist, that he is denying the grace of God and he's trying to put the law on you and he's trying to make you do something? Do you say, yeah, but, when you read those texts? Or do you look for flaws in other people to shore up your reason for not having to do those things? Do you say, well, I remember this deacon when I was a kid, and he used to tell kids not to smoke, and then he went out back and smoked, or he was a hypocrite, or do you say, well, this person here, they had this flaw, so I don't need to do that? Well, does the preacher do this? Do you look for flaws in others to excuse your own sin? Are you doing it as I speak? In today's passage, we will see that because the church are chosen pilgrims, as we learned last week, because the church are chosen pilgrims, we have a privileged position and are called to a holy lifestyle. First Peter, a book, a series that we are calling the Marrow of Christian faith. Edmund Clowney describes First Peter as the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. Believing that it contained almost everything a Christian needed to know, Martin Luther stated that First Peter is one of the noblest books of all the New Testament. Karen Jobes, a scholar, writes, 1 Peter presents how the gospel of Jesus Christ is, found, is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out in a larger unbelieving society. 1 Peter is a circular letter, which means it wasn't written to a specific church like Romans was written to the church at Rome or Ephesians to the church at, um, there, but it is written to the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was a circular letter, so it would circul- circulate throughout Turkey during an intense time of Roman persecution, and Peter is urging the church to stay the course, keep doing what you're doing, live the Christian life despite persecution. We are looked to the future, remembering that nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling the church there in Asia Minor. In last week's passage, we heard that these exiles, these castoffs, these pilgrims, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, according to his plan, that they're set apart by the Spirit. They are drawn to faith by the Spirit. They're cleansed by the blood of Christ. He washes away sins for obedience. There's that word again, a word that we often don't like in our society. We don't like the word obedience. We are rugged individuals. We like our way. But if you have trouble with that word, you're going to have trouble with 1 Peter, because Peter is often calling the church to obedience to God in their society, uh, obedience to God in our jobs, obedience to God in our marriages. We are going to see all of these things in 1 Peter. We read that our salvation is a Trinitarian work uh, last week, that our faithful obedience is required, and that through the suffering, that through suffering and through regular patterns of life, the church is protected by God's power through faith in Christ. Believers are to look forward to what is to come. We are to live life now in light of eternity. And this salvation that we will concern ourselves is a salvation this morning that is going to show us how we should live. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 and 16. First Peter is right after James. So, starting in verse 10, concerning this salvation, this salvation that has been granted to us, this setting apart by the Spirit, this washing through the blood of Christ that's being guarded by God, "...that we are to live in light of eternity. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you." in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In this text, we see two distinctions that the believer has been set apart. First, the new covenant believer has a privileged position And second, the New Covenant believer's privileged position demands a holy way of life. Again, two distinctions that the believer has been set apart from the rest of society. The New Covenant believer has a privileged position, a new heritage, a new status. And second, the New Covenant believer's privileged position demands a holy way of life. Now, before we get started, I want to lay out a couple of definitions, because I never want to assume that people know what we are saying when we say words like holy or or maybe another word that we're going to talk about, antinomianism or antinomian. And so I'm going to turn to my friend J.I. Packer, an Anglican theologian who has written a very concise book on theology for us. And he says this concerning holiness. When Scripture calls God holy or an individual persons of the Godhead holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us. It makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread. Every facet of God's nature and every aspect of his character may properly be spoken of as holy, just because it is his. The core concept, however, is God's purity, which cannot tolerate any form of sin. So God is holy, he is set apart, and he cannot tolerate any form of sin. He goes on talking about holiness to say, when John in 1 John says that God is light with no darkness in him at all, the image is affirming God's holy purity, which makes fellowship between him and the willful unholy impossible. Fellowship between God, the holy one, and the willful unholy. Not saying the person that maybe struggles with something, but the person who is willfully unholy It is impossible to have fellowship with God. Holiness and righteousness of life are a central concern for Christian people. The summons to believers, regenerate and forgiven as they are, to practice holiness that will match God's own and so please Him, is a constant theme in the New Testament, as indeed it was the Old Testament. Because God is holy, God's people must be holy. The second word I want to define is antinomianism, which means anti-law, or you're against any law. Um, It denied that the law of Scripture directly controls a Christian's life. And there are several different antinomianisms, but the one that we need to know about is Christ-centered antinomianism. And it argues that God sees no sin in believers because they are in Christ who kept the law for them, which that part is correct. But it goes on, and therefore, they, what they do makes no difference at all, provided they keep believing. But First John points in a different direction, showing us that it is not possible to be in Christ and at the same time embrace a sinful way of life. So, thinking about our points, we'll start with point one. The New Covenant believer has a privileged position. Look back with me at the text starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament prophets carefully and thoughtfully sought to find out about this salvation that would come in the first century. The NIV states that they searched intently and with the greatest of care. The prophets searched to learn more about who they were prophesying about. In their careful search, looking at verse 11, they searched for a person and a time that these things would take place. All of this was indicated by the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, the salvation that the church presently experiences, will be completed in the future and was foretold in the Old Testament. If you think for a moment about Luke chapter 24, I mentioned this one time when I zoomed in with you guys, but if you're not familiar with Luke chapter 24, um, it is a resurrection passage. Christ is risen from the dead, but it's like jam-packed with theology. And in it, the angels and Jesus are often telling the people like, hey, he told you this this stuff was going to happen. And it's repeated over and over. And one time, Jesus says, He's talking to his, his, his followers. He says that Moses, which is call sign, if you will, for the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all testify to me that I was coming. So here we see Jesus himself as saying, Moses, who is generally believed to have written the first five books of the Bible, which I think is pretty, pretty safe to say because Jesus himself is saying he wrote it. The prophets, which would have been what we call the historical books, and the prophets that have people's names after them, so Chronicles, Kings, plus Isaiah, and all those kind of books, and the psalm all testify to the coming of Christ. This was God's plan from the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ would come and make payment for our sins. It was not a reaction. And the prophets were searching intently and with the greatest of care, seeking to find out who this is. The Old Testament prophets were very interested in how and when these future visions would come. Look with me at uh, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look first, the prophets realized these things were going to take place in the future, that they weren't for them when Isaiah and these guys were writing. He writes that <clears throat> it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. It was revealed to the prophets that they would not see their prophecies come to pass, but they were for a future generation, for Peter's generation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 Says, Blessed are your eyes, speaking to the disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it, and hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, Peter's generation, that first century generation, saw Jesus, and they have a privileged status. But by extension, Peter's listeners, Peter's the people that are reading this this book and even us on this side of the cross have a privileged status. Tom Schreiner writes Peter's main point throughout is that believers in Jesus Christ are incredibly blessed to live in a time when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. Peter presses home further their privileged status by writing these are things that angels long to look into. Heavenly beings long to look into this, long to look into your salvation, if you're here and you're a Christian. And these persecuted first-century Christians would have found great comfort in that to know that they are not missing out, even though they're persecuted. they're relegated to the sidelines in society. They're not missing out because they have privilege to have this great salvation that even angels long to look into, so much more than their pagan neighbors. They are citizens of an eternal kingdom. Second, the New Testament or New Covenant believers' privileged position demands a holy way of life. Therefore, Edmund Clowney writes that imperatives of the Christian life always begin with therefore. So usually in the Bible, in an epistle at least, a New Testament epistle, when someone's writing instruction to the church and they say a whole bunch of theological stuff and then they say therefore, it's usually this is truth about God. This is how you are to live. So, takes us back to verses, the therefore, in this case, takes us back to verses 1 through 12. All that stuff I mentioned about our salvation, about God, um, about his plan. We are chosen exiles, set apart by the Spirit, protected by God, no matter what. The prophets inquire into the salvation you have. Indeed, angels long to look into the salvation that you have a privileged generation. Therefore, act like this. Look with me at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In these verses, we're going to see three imperatives of the believer's holy way of life. The first one is going to be, set your mind on the grace that is to come. After reminding the church what God has done for them in Christ, Peter transitions to how they should live. Prepare your mind for action, or literally bind up the loins of your mind. In the first century context, it would be, you know, you're wearing this, I don't know, forget what you call them, robe type thing and you don't have a lot of freedom of movement to run, and so they would tuck the tails of their robe up in their belt so they had freedom to move around, freedom to run. This saying, uh, one commentator says, is similar to, let's roll up our sleeves, let's get ready to work, let's get ready for action, be prepared. And part of that preparedness is sober-mindedness. Now, this has a much broader range in our culture than just alcohol. While certainly, as Christians, we should not be getting drunk, He is speaking more broadly of self-control. The church is to avoid anything that will confuse our reality. They are to avoid that which will draw them off a path of truth. The Christian avoids both hype and sloth. Schreiner writes, There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is numbed by the actions of the world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself, his second coming, and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Again, thinking in a soldier-type illustration, you are to neither be like an arrogant custer who's riding off to defeat some you know, inadequate army, thinking much of yourself, but you're also not supposed to be the sentry who's asleep on guard duty while the enemy's approaching. The church is to be a different kind of soldier, the soldier that it's maintained himself, maintained his equipment. He's prepared for battle. He knows there is a danger coming, but he trusts in his faithful commander. Now, when I was in the Airborne uh, as a paratrooper, we had something called GRF, or Global Response Force, which basically, if you were rotating on this, you had to be ready to jump anywhere in the world in 36 hours if needed. And so we had to have our bags packed. They were by the door. My rucksack was by the door. I could get a call in the middle of the night with a certain call sign and I had to go to post. It may just be that they wanted to see how many of us would get there and then I go back home an hour later. I may jump in somewhere for a little while or we could be going somewhere serious. But when we were in that status, we were ready. We were prepared. And that's the status that Peter's calling us for. Be prepared. You live in a hostile environment. The world does not want you as a Christian, so be prepared. Look back at verse 13. Set your hopes on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells the church to set their hopes on the grace that will be theirs when Christ returns. Think about and make decisions according to your true nature, according to who you are in Jesus Christ. They have a hard path ahead And they will not have the ability to complete their task if they are not grounded in their true identity, grounded in who they are in Jesus, that they are citizens of a heavenly country, a heavenly kingdom. The second imperative we see is they are to cast off passions of former ignorance. Look with me at verse 14. I think I went a bridge too far and read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what are these passions? Well, we could think of a few things. We might think of selfishness. Me first, my will, my rights. I want, I don't care what God wants. D.A. Carson, in a book that Pastor Ben and I have been reading, says that, how does a Christian stand at the foot of the cross and demand their own rights? How do we demand our own rights when we follow the God-man who is fully God and fully man And was nailed to a cross for our sins. How do we stand at the foot of the cross and demand our rights? Throw off that passion. We might think of temporal pleasure, drunkenness, gluttony, sensuality, adultery, sexual perversion, pornography, laziness, any number of things, these old passions. We might think of gossip, fits of anger, political maneuvering, not necessarily just in the church, but even in your workplace, do you join in political maneuvering to get your rights Dividing, side-picking, favoritism. These are the staples of the pagan life. They are rebellion against God. They are not the conduct of a member of God's family. To be holy requires a change of conduct. Jobes writes, In terms of moral transformation, the goal of both the Old and New Covenant is the same, to create a people who morally conform to God's will. So be ready, cast off old passions. And third, live holy in every aspect of your life. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. But he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Here Peter reminds the church that they are God's children, that they are obedient children. Obedience characterized the father-son relationship in the first century. So as a, children, a child born into God's family, obedience characterizes our lives as well. The idea that one can be a part of this family, pledge some verbal decision to God, and then continue to live as they always have before is found nowhere in the Bible. Amen. Faith and obedience hang together in Scripture. To believe that a Christian is not called to faithfulness is to have an unbalanced view of the Christian life. Do not be conformed to your former ignorance. The believer is to throw off our old way of living, the old man, and put on the new, out of darkness and into light. Old impulses, unrestrained living for myself, those things are no more for the Christian. We are to be set apart. We are to be a holy people. In the same way that God's people in the Old Testament were holy, in the New Testament, God's people are likewise to be holy. And not for ourselves, but for God. Not because we prefer to being unholy, but because God has called us to be holy. We are called to be like our caller in all of our life. Look at the last part of the verse. In all your conduct, this holiness penetrates in every aspect of the Christian life. We are not perfect, let that be said. I'm not preaching perfection, but I we are to strive for holiness. It's not the, just the religious part of our lives, just not the part of our lives that you see when we walk into this building, but everywhere we go. We are not talking about those who are getting in by the skin of their teeth and then there's a higher level Christians, but all Christians, all of us, the preacher the one sitting in the pew, the guy leading music, the one teaching Sunday school, we are all to be holy. <clears throat> those who are in union with Christ are not, and those, there are those who are in union with Christ and those who are not. There are those who are born again and those who are lost. There is an old man, a new man, light, darkness. The Bible speaks in these terms, not in a spectrum. And the former is not like the latter. And that's what we see in today's text. We see two distinctions that the believer has been set apart, that the new covenant believer has a privileged position, a new heritage, and that the new covenant believer is called to a holy way of life. So how then shall we live in light of this text? Well, two points of application. The second will be longer than the first. First, understand that the gospel has been God's plan from the beginning of time. I don't know about you, But when I first became a believer, I used to think, all right, and I'm reading my Bible, trying to understand, and I'm thinking, all right, so God creates this perfect world, and then Adam and Eve mess up, and he's like, what do I do now? Okay, well, I'll give them this law, and they don't really follow that either, so what do I do? Well, I have to send Jesus, but that's not it. From the beginning of time, or yeah, beginning of recorded time, the gospel has been God's plan, that Jesus Christ would come to redeem mankind for God's glory. Angels long to look into the salvation we have received. So despite our suffering, despite our relegation to the sideline, despite people laughing at us or thinking that we're hard-headed, cherish this. Christian, you should grasp the fact that you have a privileged status in Jesus. Second, pursue holiness tirelessly. The Christian life is not passive. When we live holy lives, God is glorified. There's a, uh, a Bible scholar that I really like. He's, he's gone to be of the Lord now, but his name was Alec Motyer. He was an Irish scholar. Um, he wrote a very big book on Isaiah. He wrote several commentaries. Um, a lot of guys respected him, well, still respect him. But I watched an interview um, several months ago, and he's over in Britain, and the guy interviewing him only wants to talk about his works, right? So he's asking him, how did you come to write this massive commentary on Isaiah? How did you, you know, choose to study Deuteronomy? All these things. And he just wants to talk about the scholarly side of everything. And by this time, Alec is like in his 90s, I think. And <coughs> at the end of the interview, the young interviewer says, if you have one word to give our listeners, what would it be? And you can tell like his face, like the whole interview just feels like it shifts a little bit. And Alex says, if I could go back to when I was saved in 1940, I would have pursued holiness much more than I did. And here you have this guy, and I'm in seminary while I'm watching this, a place where people are like, I'm going to take an extra year of Hebrew. I'm going to take an extra year of Greek And, and good endeavors. Hear me. I'm not, you know, bashing them. But here you have this Bible scholar who has seemingly made it, if I can use those terms, and he's saying, I would go back and I would pursue holiness. I would pursue Christ-likeness. How much for us? It doesn't matter how much we think we know, and I say think we know because in my studies of scripture and theology, it seems like the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. It doesn't matter how much we know, but do we live it? Are we striving to be Christ-like? All of us. Jerry Bridges writes, holiness is not a series of do's and do nots, but conformity to the character of God and obedience, is that word again, to his will. Again, it's not just do's and do nots, but conformity to the character of God and obedience to his will. Now, the Bible, the New Testament has lots of places we could go to look for um, teaching on holiness, but I would like for us to go to Matthew 18, and I won't read, I promise not to read the whole thing, Um, but I I would like to lay this before you. It's one of my favorite chapters of the New Testament. One commentator called it something along the lines of the conduct of the royal family, and I love that, and so that's how I think of this chapter. But it shows our set-apartness as Christians. Just as the Crowleys of Dalton had a way of life, just as a Green Beret and an operation team has specific attributes and manner of conduct, us as the Christian royal family have a certain manner of conduct. So when you look at this um, this chapter, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase as we walk through it, but starting with the first verses one through six, Jesus tells his followers, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to humble yourself as a child. You have to put others before yourself, is what he's telling his disciples. If you want to be great in my kingdom, put others first. If you go down to chapter or verses seven, through nine, we see that you must actively seek to kill sin in your life. Jesus using hyperbole goes to the point of saying, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. Now, obviously he's not telling you to actually rip out your eyes, but his point is like, whatever sin is in your life, you must be drastic. You must be ruthless in killing it and getting it out of your life. The Puritan John Owen used to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look down at 10 through 14. Each one of God's sheep is so important to him that he will leave the ninety and nine and go after the one. Now, when we read this often, and, and it's not wrong to read it this way, we see it and we say, oh, I'm so important to God. Well, that's true. If you're here and you're Christian, I'm saying you are important to God. But if you read it in its context where it's sandwiched, I think there's also an aspect of, Jesus is saying, that little Christian over there He's so important to me that I will leave the 99 and go get him. He had better be important to you. If you're in the church family of God, he had better be important to you as well. Next, 15 through 20. um, If your brother sins against you, go and work it out. Don't gossip about him or her. Don't make a political move to box him in, but go tell them. Involve other people from the church. If you go to your brother and he just won't work it out, grab a couple of other brothers and go, but work it out. If it still won't work out, take it to the church. Let them handle it. If need be, if this person is unrepentant, if there's no reconciliation, the church may turn them out for a time. But the goal in these steps is always reconciliation and repentance of that brother or that sister because they're important. They're one of God's people. And then finally, wrapping up the chapter 21 through 35, we have the parable of the unforgiven servant. And... I won't, like I said, I won't read it all, but the, the story goes, there's this one servant that owes a lifetime of debt. If you read it in the original language, it's this crazy number that like can't even be identified. So it'd be like us saying zillions, like zillions is not actually a number, I don't think. Um, and he goes to the master and begs for forgiveness. And he goes, you know what? Fine. You don't owe me anything. But then he go that same servant goes out and finds another servant who owes him like 30 bucks because he went to the movies last week and didn't have it on him. And he starts choking him and says, pay me what you owe me. And he says, I don't have it, have mercy on me. The same thing that the other guy had said to his master. And the wicked servant says, nah, I'm throwing you in prison. The master finds out about it and takes everything from that first guy and throws him in prison. The moral of the story is, is that the redeemed people must be, or the forgiven people must be a forgiving people. If you have been forgiven a lifetime of debt by the creator of the universe, a lifetime of sin and rebellion, and you can hold your brother uh, to some sin that he committed against you, some small, seemingly small thing, it shows that you're not actually in the family. It's not a story of like, if you do that, you will lose your salvation. Your conduct shows that you're not actually in the family to begin with. There are many more texts that would deal with how we are to live as Christians, but I think this chapter shows a lot that we all, myself included, should strive for. And you must strive for it. There's not a single one of of us in here who will accidentally drift into holiness. We will not accidentally become godly. We must strive every day to mortify sin and seek after the things of God. Ruthlessly kill sin in your life. So if you have a mental framework that allows you to live like the world around you, brother, sister, hear me now, you're in trouble. If you can easily put yourself in front of your brother and sister, brother, sister, hear me, you are in trouble. If you would rather talk about a brother and sister rather than go to them in biblical reconciliation, likewise, you're in trouble. If we can harbor anger, forgiveness, spite, derision against others, while we have been forgiven a lifetime of sin. And now I'm not talking about someone does something to you and upsets you and it takes you a little bit, but you repent of it and you get over it. I'm talking about that, you know, that kind of hate and that unrepented um, unforgiveness that we can hold on to. If you can do that, friend, you are in trouble. Now, maybe you're like, the character Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but Christian is on this straight and narrow path. He's headed to the celestial city, and oftentimes he messes up and he gets off the path and he always gets in trouble, but then he repents and he comes back to the path. So maybe that's you. Maybe you have struggled with these things and you just need to come back to the path. You need to repent. Or maybe your conduct is simply showcasing the fact that you don't actually trust Christ that you do not have faith nor repentance from sins. I will not mince my words here, friends. You cannot be a child of the king and constantly act in a way that he hates. We reject his word, attack his people, rebel against the things he says about himself. Because God himself is perfectly holy, no fellowship between him and the willful unholy is possible, as Packer had told us earlier. To come to God, you must be holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. The person who knows their debt has been paid, that knows that they are truly in Christ, will cry, oh, let me be holy. Change my life as you have changed my heart. They will not see the commands to honor God as repulsive or restrictive or violating their rights. But they will genuinely desire the light yoke that Christ offers us. But do not confuse the order. It is not act this way and you will attain a privileged status. It is because you are privileged, act this way. As one theologian put it, God's commands are always rooted in his grace. You will never be able to live this holy life on your own. A sanctified life is a gift from God. Just as we are justified by faith, we are also sanctified and set apart by faith. Holiness, the setting apart by the world, is evidence that you truly love and trust Christ. So friend, this morning, are you trusting Jesus? Do you believe in this God-man? Jesus Christ, as I have said before and I will say again, was God's one and only Son. He has always existed. There is never a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. He came to earth and walked the life that you and I could not live as the God-man. If you have a gospel that collapses God's deity into into his humanity, or vice versa, his humanity into his deity, where he ceases to be one or the other, friend, that is not the gospel. He must have been fully God and fully man, otherwise he was not Emmanuel or God with us. He could not have paid for our sins. Just as the book of Hebrews tells us, he is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he is the same tomorrow. He is immutable. He does not change. Jesus has always existed. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, coexisting from eternity past, standing outside of time as we know it. And this is the only way to salvation, friend. The Bible says to repent and believe. Repent being a Greek word that literally means turn. So you turn from sin and self, turn from selfishness and rebellion, and turn to Christ. He paid your uh, sin on the cross, taking it all on himself If you have more questions about that, I will be more than willing to talk with you anytime. Just let me know. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, weighty things that we deal with in your text today, things not to be trifled with. God, I pray for each one here that if they are not trusting Christ, you would open their eyes. And if they are trusting Christ, I pray that they would be renewed afresh to pursue holiness that we would all seek a lifestyle that honors you and our community, that we would be salt and light by living in a way that shows that we are truly yours, that we have been set apart, that we have been sealed with your spirit, that he indwells us, he never leaves. And wherever we go, that you are with us because of this indwelling, that we would live in such a way that people would take notice, even in an unbelieving society. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.